If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading Psalm 128, and you can follow along on the screens behind me or in your pew Bible on page 518, or in your own Bible. Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is God's word. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy at the works of your hand. Forever I love you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath all that I am never cease to worship you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and my 
majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy at the work of your hands. Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Let's sing that chorus out one more time. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares to the promise I have. Oh, nothing compares to the promise I have. Oh, nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Amen. Pray with me for a second. Father, we approach you only through Jesus Christ. Lord, we approach you in adoration just as we sang. Nothing compares to the promise we have. We're so thankful for all these things. Lord, I pray now you would come with your Holy Spirit, help us understand your powerful word, and change us through it. Amen. Please be seated. Man. Since we are a little shorthanded today, we do not have our normal kid's journey, which is from preschool up through fifth grade. We will have that again next week, but there is preschool care downstairs uh, today. Also, forgot to mention that next week we start up our Sunday school classes, and the adult classes are going to be on the Pentateuch and on uh, the Trinity. So you're welcome. Those begin at 930, and as John referenced in his prayer, we have worked through a visioning process, and we're presenting that more fully next week as the sermon series begins. Pastor Brandon will bring us a sermon series related to our vision, but following the service, there will be a potluck luncheon at which we'll be able to be brought up to date and understand where we're headed related to this vision. So mark that date. Please stay afterwards if you can. And it is potluck, and Pastor Brandon says it has to be crock pot or coals, the two C's. So, uh, thank you for contributing to that. At Sandy Island, we were doing the Songs of Ascent. There's 15 psalms where uh, the pilgrims, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, especially during the festivals, would sing. They'd sing these songs, they'd sing these praises, and What's interesting about them is that each psalm has a different take on the journey itself. And the first psalm that Brandon preached on was a psalm 
that related to the people being ridiculed and how they really needed the mercy of God when they're being ridiculed. And so as these psalms work through various emotions that we go through in the Christian life, we we come to the psalm I'm speaking on today, and that's Psalm 128. And what you can imagine, if you were making your way up to Jerusalem, what would be on your mind? You're going up to the house of God, so probably first and foremost would be God himself. And then you would think in terms of, I am going to see God, so, so how am I going to approach him? And then you might think of your family. If, you have a, if you're a man, you have a wife, and then your children. And then you might expand that and think in terms of your nation. And how does your nation stand before God? And wouldn't we want our nation blessed? And yet that's the progression we actually see in this psalm itself. But what we're going to look at is mainly two things that are described in the first verse. And that is, everyone who fears the Lord is blessed. So we're going to look at blessing and what does that mean? And secondly, the fear of the Lord. What, what does that mean? Let's pray. Our Father, we come now and we want to take down all, any barriers that are between us and you. For Lord, we do want to grow and become the men and the women, the, the boys and the girls that you would have us to be. And so, Lord, the only way for that to happen is for us to hear you speaking to us today. So, so Lord, do take down those barriers so that we do not have to be self-protective. We can hear truth that pertains to us because we stand in the grace of Jesus Christ. And you love us regardless. So, Lord, do speak to each one of us today exactly and precisely where we are. So, the first thing we see in this psalm is the blessing. Everyone who fears the Lord is blessed. Now, we use that word pretty regularly. Uh, you might say somebody has a, a blessed life, or we say uh, blessings on you. Or hope you're blessed, or if you sneeze, God bless you. What does that really mean, though? And so uh, I looked at the the amplified version of the Bible. When they have this verse, they put in parentheses right after the word blessed, happy and secure in God's sheltering care. And that starts to catch it. Uh, the New Living Translation substitutes the word joyful for blessed. And if we look at this passage itself, it talks about everything going well for you. So, so think in terms of blessing is that life is good. You're happy, joyful. You, you know you're sheltered and protected by God. And it seems that you're, you're prosperous and everything works well. And this type of blessing, when spoken to Israel, is almost always speaking of a physical kind of blessing. And there's a reason for that. 
Because Israel was God's chosen people. He took them as a nation to be a light to the world. And instead of God saying, Israel, go out into the world and preach the gospel, he said, Israel, God dwells in your midst. Be faithful to God and the world will look in at you and see the one true God. Now, what could the world see and witness that would get them to believe Israel had the one true God, and that would be prosperity? If this nation is blessed, if they are fruitful, if they are victorious, they must have the true God. And that's exactly what Rahab sees when she hosts Jewish spies, and she says, I believe you have the, what, the true God because I see him winning victories all the way to the promised land. It's what the key, Queen of Sheba saw when she looked at Solomon and all his splendor and his wealth, his riches and his wisdom. And she said, I want your God. And so it's very natural that the psalmist is going to speak of blessing in terms, physical terms. And that's exactly what we see in this passage it begins with this man himself. It says, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. If, if you are fearing God, you'll eat the fruit of the labor of your hand. Which means you work hard, you're going to get what you deserve. You're not going to be cheated. You're not going to be paid low, a low amount. You're not going to be taken advantage of. You're going to be, you're going to eat and you're going to survive. You're going to be sheltered. Uh, because you've worked hard and you've feared the Lord. And then it moves outward from the individual uh, to his wife. And it says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And there's a number of features of this. First is that the wife is in the house. Now, this is in contrast to the wife in the book of Proverbs that wasn't in the house. She was out on the street consorting with other men. And so it's speaking about you have a, a faithful relationship with each other, a loving relationship with one another. You're secure in each other's love. It says she's fruitful. Now, in light of Psalm 127, which talks about children being a blessing, and we hope you're, you have a quiver full of them, this is speaking about she, she has a lot of children. She bears many, many children, fills the house with them. And the fact that she's a vine may well reference the fact that uh, she produces grapes, which produce wine, and wine is symbolic of celebration. And so you have this relationship between husband and wife of a loving, caring, celebratory relationship. And then your children, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. And... The olive crop was very important to Israel. They were financially dependent upon it. And so if the olive crop failed, the nation was in trouble. And he's saying here, so uh, to be like an olive shoot growing up is, is a blessing in the sense of they themselves are prosperous within your house. They're, they're the kind of children you, you really dream of having. And then it says, they're around the table. 
And the table is a place of fellowship. You, you dine together. You eat together. That's the place of fellowship. So you have your, your children with you in deep relationship. And so you have this picture of this incredible blessing. And, of course, then he moves to, to the nation itself, and he wants that kind of blessing on Israel, calls upon for prosperity for Israel, and then ultimately for children's children that it passes on to your grandchildren, this type of blessing. So what we see is this type of life is the result of fearing God. Now, that may raise the question in our minds is there a is this a promise of god that if you fear god you really have the perfect home a perfect marriage perfect children is there a one to one correspondence so that if i fear the lord that i know everything's going to go well in my household everything's going to go well in my life therefore if my family isn't all that I wished it would be or God wants it to be, then I have failed greatly. I have not feared the Lord. Is this a promise? No. This is a psalm of ascent. And in the psalm of ascent, people are coming to God and remembering the type of God he is. And he is a God who cares for his people. That there is a connection between fearing God. There is a correlation between fearing God in the way the family turns out. So that uh, if your family is, is turning out great, you can look back at many things you did in your relationship with God that had that of ripple effect into your family. And when the family goes like that, even it can have a ripple effect into the nation. Uh, but there is not a one-to-one correlation. This is a general truth about God's blessing. Because when we look in the Bible, it doesn't seem to match this one-to-one correlation. For instance, Hannah was a very, very faithful woman. But she was barren for a long, long time until she finally had one child, Samuel. Samuel was a man, a prophet, who feared God. But his sons were so rebellious that the people said, we don't want them leading us. We, we need a king. Jesus himself had no children. And he did not have an easy time of it in his life, nor did Paul nor Peter, who all feared the Lord. The reason is, though God generally wants to work, it works in this way, there are other factors that come into play that may have God in his sovereign hand working life differently for, for our households or our lives. For instance, if you read Psalm 91, it's an incredible psalm of God's protection. It says you'll be there and you can have a thousand fall on one side and ten thousand fall on the other side, but nothing's going to touch you. He goes on and he says, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. I mean, you're not even going to stub your toe according to this psalm. And so this psalm truly speaks that God has a protective umbrella over those who fear God. But does that mean if somebody falls in battle that they didn't fear God? In fact, this, this, past, this Psalm 91 is quoted in the New Testament by Satan. He uses it on Jesus when he says, Jesus, come up to the temple and throw yourself off because God's going to protect you. And he quotes the scripture. And we think, how was good was God's protective care over Jesus? He was arrested, unjustly tried, beaten, nailed to a cross, crucified. You see, if Jesus took Satan's interpretation of that passage, he never would have gone to the cross. It would have been antithetical to the promise of God's going to protect you. So how could you ever give yourself over to the Romans? Legions of angels were ready to rush in. God's protective care was available, but neither Jesus nor the Father's will sent those angels. So what we're seeing is that though these truths, they're tremendous truths about God, we can rest in. And I believe Psalm 91 says, nothing, nothing can happen to you apart from the sovereign will of God who works all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So, if your marriage not turned out the way you dreamed of, if your family, if your children are rebellious, or some of them have gone astray and walked away from the Lord, don't beat yourself up. First, realize God may have other purposes, other reasons for what's happened in your lives. Just like he had another purpose for Jesus. And uh, I know if I had a perfect family, I would probably be so arrogant, think I had all the answers and look down at everybody else. They must not be fearing God because when you fear God, you get the perfect family. And, and I would have the book, right? I would say, this is how you do it. Step one, two, three. And I'd give you that cookie-cutter answers for this is how to raise your children, and they're going to turn out perfect. And I don't know. Maybe that's a reason. Families don't turn out great. Maybe there's other reasons we don't know. We shouldn't beat ourselves up even if we did it wrong, even if we fail, we're failing in our relationship with God at th- certain points, and even if our sin did impact our children, those sins are nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to allow not only God to forgive us, but to forgive ourselves and not to be trapped in guilt. The cross is big it's gigantic and god is sovereign 
Somehow what we did did not ruin God's eternal sovereign plan for history or even the lives of our children. Refresh ourselves in the grace of Jesus Christ and step up and move forward with God to become the parents, even if they're older, to become the parents that God wants us to be to our children at whatever age they are or in our marriage now. And thirdly, we need to remember that the greatest blessing is not in the physical realm. It's in the spiritual realm. James says this. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you have the perfect family. Mike doesn't think that's an accurate quote there. And it doesn't say that. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, an endurance-proven character. That's a joy. Because ultimately, every Christian should say, I want to become more and more like Jesus Christ in my character. And James is saying it, and Paul says it in, in Romans 5, it's often the tribulation in the trials that deepen our relationship with God and begin to help us to see our faults so they can then be transformed by the Spirit of God. That's the ultimate joy. The real blessed life is something like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Boy, if we had those, would we not have a blessed life no matter what's happening around us physically? And of course, I know many of you realize I just cited the fruit of the Spirit. For those who walk in the Spirit of God will have that fruit in their lives. That's what we're after. So, everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. So uh, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And there's, there's two major misconceptions about this term. The first is that to fear the Lord only means be afraid of him. And the second is the fear of the Lord has nothing to do with being afraid of him. So the fear of the Lord does include being afraid of God. Now, if it only meant that, then the Christian life would be one that is almost imprisoned by guilt. We tiptoe around afraid that somehow we'll cross God and God's going to get us. In fact, our world sometimes looks in at Christians and thinks that that's what we mean when we say fear the Lord. That we are afraid God is going to get us and we live emotionally constrained in this type of fear. In fact, there are two authors who wrote an article that said that The idea of fearing God is like living under the Stockholm Syndrome. 
familiar with the Stockholm Syndrome, what that is is that when a person is taken hostage, because they are living in such fear as a hostage, they begin to relate to the hostage taker, the one who has captured them and imprisoned them. And they start to empathize with them and they start to unite with them because that's the way they deal with their fear. Back in the 70s, we had a, a case, uh, Patricia Hurst, Patty Hurst, who was an heiress in the Hurst family. And she was kidnapped. And the, the whole nation was captured by this. And all of a sudden, she's kidnapped by this, uh, this group, uh, an activist group that's trying to, to change America. And she shows up in a picture with a gun with the group's emblems emblazoned behind her. And then a few days later, she's pictured robbing a bank with them. And that's the Stockholm Syndrome. And, and there are people outside of Christianity that thinks this is what Christianity is. They live under the fear of God so much that they begin to, to, uh, to fall into this Stockholm Syndrome with their captor, God himself. Now that is not the picture of the Christian life I get from the scriptures. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, you know, I'm teaching you the word of God here. I'm teaching you about relationship with God so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. First John writes, he, John writes his book, First John, he says, you know, I write these things to you that our joy, all of us together, our joy may be full. Now, the Christian life is a life in which we are called to joy. But there is a place, there is a place for fear. Because it is fearful to stand before a just, holy God in, your own, in our own personal righteousness. Uh, there's an illustration I read don't know if it's true or not, but it talks about the king of Hungary at one time. And he was thinking about God, and he was looking at his own life, and he realized that he could not stand before God. And so he was living in fear, and he was getting depressed. So he decided to, to ask his brother, who was this uh, carefree, love, uh, fun-loving guy, to, to meet with him, and maybe his brother could cheer him up. And he shared his concern, and his brother just laughed at him and belittled him, saying, why would you ever fear God? And so the, the king that night sent a, a, an executioner outside the door of his brother and blew the trumpet. Now, that culture, if the executioner blew the trumpet outside your door, that means you are going to be taken and executed. And so the brother collapsed in fear and he ran to the king and he threw himself before the king and he said, what did I ever do? What did I ever do to deserve this? And the king looked at him and he said, my brother, if the sight of a human executioner is so terrible to you, shall not I, having grievously offended God, fear to be brought before the judgment seat of Christ? There is a judgment seat of Christ. None of us can stand before it 
and it brings the judgment of God. Now, we, we might want to think, well, God shouldn't judge us. If we're asking God to not judge, we are saying, God, do not be just. We are saying, God, stop being holy. No longer be righteous. We're asking God to stop being God. God judges sin. And if we stand before him in our sin, we should be afraid. But 1 John says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What John is saying is, Christians, Jesus Christ died for your sins. So when you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, what God sees, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees those sins forgiven, and he sees you clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if, Christian, if you have If you're afraid to stand before God, you don't understand the cross. You don't understand the love of God which was demonstrated at that cross that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and took our place. And so he, he looked like us before God so we could look like him before God. So the Christian, we don't have this kind of fear before God. We don't live the Christian life because we're afraid God's going to get us. God already got Jesus for us. We live the Christian life because of love. Uh, Jay Gershon Machen captures this. He says, even the Christian must fear God, but it's another kind of fear. It's a fear rather of what might have been than what is. It's a fear of what would come were we not in Christ. Without such fear, there can be no true love. For the love of the Savior is proportioned to one's horror of that from which man has been saved. Another way to say it is, if you were saved from uh, a speeding ticket of having to pay $30, you might go, oh, good, my insurance isn't going to come up. But if you were in the front line about to be killed and somebody reached in and saved you, or if you were on death row and you were pardoned, you would have this incredible relief, joy, celebration, and you'd be forever grateful to the person who freed you, saved you from that death. And so we need to remember what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus said to that woman, He who is forgiven much loves much. If we don't initially fear God and don't think there's a judgment, what does God save us from? Nothing. But if we understand the vastness of what would fall on us, we celebrate him, we fall in love with him because those who have forgiven much love much. So the fear of God does include love, but, but it's much more than that. Excuse me, it does include being afraid, but it's much, much more than that. Uh, Reading the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible, it defined the fear of God as giving God proper regard. Giving God proper regard. And what does that mean? It means seeing God for who he is and responding to every truth about God 
as he is. So a Robert Stemple put it this way. He says, there's, in this fear of God, there's a convergence of awe, reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, love, and yes, fear. So, okay, giving God his proper regard, looking at God as he truly is, every truth about him, we respond appropriately and properly. And the first thing we need to realize when we fear God is we fear the one true God. Verse 1, if you, if you looked in your Bibles, or Bibles, you'll notice it says, everyone who fears the Lord. Does anyone notice anything about the word Lord? Okay, it's all capital letters. It's not capital L, so, you know, lowercase l. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Does anyone know why it's in all capitals? Mike. See, the Hebrews, the name was so holy, so revered, they wouldn't pronounce it. And that kind of gets carried over to us. Uh, we're not even sure exactly how to pronounce his name. But when it's written in the scripture, with, it's translated with all capitals. So what he's saying is, it's not fear of God, some generic God, some divinity. It is the fear of the God of Israel, the one true God. So what it's saying is, as much as we might want to uh, think, we can worship any God, just a different name, Allah, Buddha, Baal, the Ashtaroth. He says, no, there is one and only one true God. He is the one to be feared. And he's a jealous God. He deserves the honor, not the other gods who are really non-existent. So what that does is it warns us to not create God in the image that we want to see him. And Isaiah picks this up in the chapter 40. It says, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. Casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. So what you have is an image here of people creating their own God. And if you have a lot of money, then you create a God that's gold and silver. If you don't have much money, you've got to create your own God out of wood. But you want to make sure he's stable, that he doesn't fall over a lot. Okay? And it's a ridiculous picture of what people do in creating their own gods. But if we don't go to the scripture to see who God truly is, or we play around with the scripture and begin to fashion God into the image of what we want him to be. For instance, uh, we might say, God is love. 
Therefore, everybody's going to heaven, no matter what. It's true God is love, and it's true that God paid the price so everyone could go to heaven. But God is just, and if we choose not to accept Christ as Savior, we stand before him in our sin. The scripture is very clear. We'll be judged. I would like to see, I would like to say everybody's in. But that's me. It's not the scripture. I can't create a God that's going to fall over. And this God of scripture is more wonderful, more perfect, more loving than any God we could create in our minds. So, first step in the fear of God is get to know the true God. Don't compromise who he is because we would like to see him in a different way. And Isaiah continues, Why do you say, O Jacob, why do you, excuse me, he continues, Do you not know, do you not hear, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and he spreads them like a tent. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of this earth as empty. Scarcely are they planted, and scarcely are they sown. Scarcely have their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. And so what do you have here but a call to see God? Have you not known it? You know who this God is. Look at creation and see his power and his majesty and his sovereignty. That's who God is. And so then he speaks to a nation that where life is falling apart. Israel's being torn apart and the people are fearful. And so they're crying out. He says, God, have you forgotten us? Have you left us? And Isaiah is saying, look at creation and see who God is. And then he says, why do you say, O Jacob, why do you complain, O Israel? Why do you say my way is hidden from God and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. In him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exalted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagle. They will run and not be weary. They'll walk and they won't faint. What he's saying is, our nation's in turmoil. And sometimes I wonder, what is happening here? What is going to happen? God, have you, have you, have you just left this world? Have you forsaken it? What, what's going on? And that's exactly what Israel was feeling. He says, why do you say that? Look at God. And when you look at God and you know he is the sovereign God who is working all things together, then you can rest. You can have courage. You can have strength. And you can be like an eagle. 
lying. So that's what it means. Look at truths about God. Respond to them as you should. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to rapid fire a number of verses that talk about the fear of God related to a truth that, of how we should respond. First of all, we look at Isaiah 6. And what you see is Isaiah has seen the throne of God. It's surrounded by, by the angels. And they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, his response is, Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of Kings. So if we really stood before God, we would see ourselves and our sin. And Isaiah, eventually his sin is covered by the cross of Christ. And he gets up and he serves him. But we need to see God's holiness and look at ourselves in light of it and confess our sin. That's a response of fearing God. A Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is, inst- is instruction and wisdom. Humility comes before honor. So what he's saying is, the fear of the Lord brings humility. When we see God as big as he is and that we're like grasshoppers, how can we ever be arrogant? How could we ever try to define God? How should, could we ever sit as a judge over God and say God should be like this or he is this or I think God is like this rather than going to God's self-revelation in Scripture? How could we ever think we've accomplished something without God? Humility when we see the true God. Worship, Revelation 14, 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of judgment has come, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. God is creator. The response is the creature serves and worships the creator. Psalm 128 already told us, everyone who fears the Lord does what? Walks in his ways. And this isn't, we're afraid of God that he's going to get us, so now we're going to walk in his ways. What he's saying is, when we see God in all he is, I mean, he is the God who made life itself. He designed it. He knows how life should be lived. And so we understand that about God we're going to know the best way to live is to walk in his ways. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Let's see, when we fear God and see him in his love, his grace, his forgiveness, we fall in love with him. And our whole being gets tied up in wanting in his glory and wanting to live for him and follow him. And so we don't, we don't obey God because we have to. We obey him because we want to. It leads to evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What's it mean? We know God is a judge. And we've been, we've been saved from that judgment because we believe in Christ, but there are loved ones around us who have not accepted Christ. 
we're going to share Christ with them. And fear of the Lord means we give him everything because he is God. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac. He makes an altar. He lays his son on the altar, and he pulls the knife to sacrifice Isaac. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He said, you fear God. You, you have a relationship with God. You trust God. You know him. This is not about, I'm afraid God's going to get me if I don't sacrifice my son. Hebrews tells us that I, uh, Abraham believed if he sacrificed Isaac because Isaac was the son of promise, God was going to raise him from the dead because that's the, his promise was coming through that son. That son had to be alive. Even if he struck him down, he's going to be alive. He's going to be raised. So he didn't fear God that way. He feared God because he trusted God. He trusted the promise of God. And he was willing to give the most precious thing. Isaac was a son. That's very, very precious. But he was more than a son. He was the line of promise of all of Israel. And Abraham offered it up because he feared God. Because he knew his God He could trust everything in his life to God. He could give anything God needed to him. When we see God, we know him for who he is. We can reach that point in our lives. Ray Ortland said, The fear of the Lord gains in appeal as we agree with C.S. Lewis that in God you come up against everything, something which is in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. If we think we can live a single day of our lives without staying low before the Lord, yielding to his superior wisdom, drawing upon his endless provision moment by moment, we're deceiving ourselves. But as soon as we accept that we are not the measure, but the measured, we're not the givers, We're the recipients. And we know that Jesus Christ is the universe's greatest expert in all things human. We embark on a wonderful new journey. We are free to grow and change. We need to know to thrive. We need to know the Lord is God and we are not. Our Father... We thank you for this reminder, which appears over and over in Scripture, that we need to come before you. We need to give you the glory, do your name. We need to be humble ourselves before you. We need to worship you. We need to know you and receive the forgiveness and the love that you so seek to pour out upon us. To know you as Father to go to the cross where we see all the truths about you, your sovereign hand turning darkness into the greatest light ever through the resurrection, to see your love and grace as Christ takes our place, to see your power and, and purposes in the resurrection. Lord, draw us ever to that cross so we might know you so fully that we would fear you and live lives of delight and joy in light of that fear. 
Amen.